This week we're going to finish up John 2, and John 2 is dealing with the last half of it. If you remember last week, we were talking about the first sign that Jesus did in the book of John. John says this was the first sign that Jesus did in, the, uh, in Cana of Galilee where he turned water into wine, right? We remember talking about this, and we remember a lot of people go, well, his first miracle was turning water into wine, so it's okay to drink wine. Well, it is okay to drink wine. It's just not okay to be drunk, right? Drunkenness is forbidden. Drinking wine is not. Amen? But drinking was not the moral of the story in John 2. It had nothing to do with the actual drinking. It had everything to do with the miracle itself and how it spoke of Jesus being the Messiah, the one who was going to bring us out of the law and bring us into grace. The water pots were for the Jewish festival of or ceremony of cleansing, right? To cleanse you before you went into the house. That's what those water pots was for. And the fact that Jesus turned that old water of the old covenant into the new wine of the new covenant is very specific in what he was doing it it meant so much more than just oh you can have wine right the, the moral of the story is not oh you can have wine the moral of the story is jesus is god and this was the first sign that he did to prove that amen we find that in John 2 and 11, I believe. Let's look back. I want to make sure I'm, I'm not joshing you here. 11, yes, this is the first sign Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. Manifested his glory and his disciples believed upon him. Amen. So last week we dealt with this first miracle, Jesus' first sign, the first miracle that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee that manifested his glory and caused his disciples to believe on him. You see, there's not a point in Jesus' life that what he was doing was not meant to do something to cause faith to come out of someone. Amen? The whole purpose of Jesus' life was so that people would believe. Amen? And the whole purpose of John writing this letter is so that people will believe. Amen? So when we look at this miracle, we, look, we, we, we talked about that miracle. Last week we were talking about this first sign. This week we look at the cleansing of the temple. And the promise of a sign. We will also see that the fulfillment of prophecy is happening. And we will see also a declaration of Christ's omniscience and deity. Here in this portion of chapter 2 we will move from the private miracle to the public ministry full of zeal that Christ started with. Amen. So as we start John 2 and finish the chapter, we're going to read from verse 13, I believe. Okay. Verse 13, it says, And the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling ox and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the ox. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. The Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple 
and will you raise it up in three days? And he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would continue to teach us, continue to grow us in your word, God. We pray that today you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would receive this message this morning. Lord, that we would not turn to our own understanding, but in all our ways that we would acknowledge you. Help us to see what's going on in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, the first thing that I want to say is the fact that this is tied to Jesus' first miracle and Jesus does this miracle, leaves uh, Cana, goes to Capernaum for a few days, and then goes to Jerusalem for this Passover, is not an accident. Amen? What I also want you to understand is the fact that Jesus cleanses the temple and then talks about his resurrection, his death, burial, and resurrection, is also not coincidence. Amen? Everything Jesus does is to show people who he is and to fulfill what the Messiah was supposed to do. Amen? And we see in this story Jesus fulfilling prophecy. I want to read just a quick note. It says, this major confrontation with the Jews is the first of Jesus with the leaders of of the Jews in John's gospel. It takes place on the occasion of Jesus cleansing the temple of Jerusalem at the Jewish Passover. The synoptic gospels record a second, later temple cleansing that happens about the time of his crucifixion. By cleansing the temple, Jesus displays prophetic zeal for God's house. See John 2, 17, Psalm 69, 9. And he foreshadows the judgment on the Jewish leaders who allowed the worship of God to deteriorate into commerce, rendering prayer difficult in the temple. So what was going on in the temple, the, the activities themselves were not bad. They had to bring goats and sheep and pigeons and birds for sacrifice. They had to, right? The problem wasn't what they were doing. The problem was where they were doing it. The problem is they were not having reverence for God's house and the purpose that the temple was there for. What was the temple there for? Well, if you go and look at the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they all, right after the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem at the fourth Passover of his life that he attended that we have record of, at that Passover, Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple, and he says, you have made my father's house a den of thieves, but the, the God's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. Notice that those words are not in this temple cleansing. Amen? Which is why we know not just because of the timeline that it's not the same one. It's not the same words spoken at this temple cleansing as opposed to the one that happens at the end of Jesus' ministry before he goes to the cross. Amen? So at this one, he's just telling them, you're turning my father's house into a house of trade, into a house of commerce, instead of it being a house of prayer. 
I could go on all day for this subject because when we come together, we have uh, a modern American idea that, oh, I'm just going to church and we come in so casual. With Mary a thought to God or anything else until the music starts. Right? I remember a, a wedding for a certain people's family member <laughs> not too long ago. They went to a church and the gentleman didn't want to take his hat off. So they didn't get married there. So they went to another church. Now I'm telling you what, might not be a big deal to you. And it might not be a big deal to people who don't understand the Bible. But a man is not supposed to pray with his head covered. That's what scripture says. And not Old Testament scripture. This is Paul in the New Testament said that men ought not to pray with their head covered because they dishonor their head who is Christ. So if a believer comes into the house of God and wants to get married, then they ought to take their hat off. So I would have to side with the first pastor on this subject. Amen? And I'm only saying this because we don't have a reverence for the things that we're doing. Marriage is not a state institution. Come on, somebody. Marriage is God's institution. Marriage was instituted by the Lord, and marriage is a solemn, holy event. And if we do marriage and we do weddings, it should be a solemn, holy event. And if it's done that way, with the right reverence, but that goes back to our society who has shoved God out of everything and made everything that used to be looked at as holy and acceptable and the things that we should do, acceptable Christian practice, and we've made it, oh, it doesn't matter. No, it does matter. How I come to church, why I come to church, amen? I'm not saying everybody has to wear a suit like I do, okay? Now, I will say this, there's sometimes when uh, clothes can be a little too revealing. Come on, somebody, amen? And maybe we ought to think about that, but you never see me coming in here with, you know, a, 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 a tank top on or, you know. And now, I have, I have wore shorts when I preached one time, and that really, really threw some people off, okay? Now, I'm not saying you can't. What I'm saying is, I think... What we've done is we've made this Christian life so relaxed that nothing is important to us. That we take nothing of value. Amen. And the reality is marriage is God's institute. And if we're going to become a part of what God wants us to do and get married, then we ought to do it reverently and soberly. That's even in, if you've ever listened to me give a wedding ceremony that I talk about that marriage is not something that should be entered into lightly but discreetly, soberly and with reverence because this is supposed to be a commitment not just to the woman that you love but before God for the rest of your life. Amen. That's biblical marriage. Amen. Amen. Communion. You can see in 1 Corinthians 11 that they were not taking the Lord's Supper seriously. They were just coming together and eating and somebody would fill up their plate and just go start eating without nary a thought for who was really hungry and who really needed something to eat. And Paul said, you guys are not rightly discerning the body and the blood of Christ. That's what's going on in this temple scene is that these men and women were in the temple, the outer courts, and they were buying and selling, and it was becoming so important that people couldn't even come in just to worship, which is what the temple was for. 
was for prayer, for worship. Amen? I have a note here from the Reformation Study Bible. It says, Jesus is the final and full expression of what was only a shadow in the Old Testament, according to Hebrews chapter 1, or chapter 10, verse 1. Here he indicates that God is present in him in a way that was only uh, foreshadowed in the temple that stood on the Temple Mount. The temple in Jerusalem could be destroyed, but not the temple that Jesus would rebuild in three days, his own body that was to be raised from the dead. John's, uh, John's record of the temple cleansing immediately after the miracle at Cana, verse 1 through 11, offers an important key to the whole of Jesus' ministry. These events are singled, uh, uh, these events are signaling the replacement of the old order, the water pots, the ceremonial cleansing, uh, and Herod's temple with the new wine of salvation that is brought through Christ, the risen lamb as the new temple. See Revelation 21 and 20, 21 verse 22. In Revelation 21, 22, it says, And I saw that there was no temple in heaven, because the lamb, he was the temple. Amen. Amen. We see in these pages, Jesus being consumed with reverence over the house of God. And we, I, I get on to my children every once in a while because, you know, when we're getting ready for bed or we're getting ready to eat or we're getting ready to uh, start a Bible study or in Bible study, sometimes they just, when, when that's their turn to pray, they just say, oh, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for everything you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> yep. Now, does God hear that prayer? Sure he does. And am I dealing with them on, oh, you can't pray that way. No, I don't say it like that. I say, it doesn't sound like you really meant what you're praying. Sound like you're just wanting to say it to get it out of the way. Right? Why? Because prayer is a serious thing, and we don't need to treat it as a frivolous thing. You are having conversation with the God of the entire universe. And if that doesn't make you go, wow, something's wrong, amen? And if we train our children that it's no big deal, then that's what they think of it. That's why when you tell people that you're going to have a prayer meeting every night for how many ever days, you can have 40, 50 people at church and you'll have two or three people at prayer meeting because society has relegated to prayer a very lesser idea than scripture puts on it. The church today has made prayer insignificant to the point that people don't want to do it or don't think it's necessary. And my question to every Christian who thinks prayer is unnecessary and that it is useless, my question to them is, Jesus prayed, so what makes you think you shouldn't? My question is, Jesus felt the need not only to pray every once in a while, but he felt the need to pray every day. He separated himself and went off alone to pray. He had a prayer life. He had a time where he went and talked to the Father. But we have no reverence for God's house. We have no reverence for the things of God. And we need to gain that back. Where's our zeal for prayer? Where's our zeal for studying God's word? Where's our zeal for reaching the community that we're in? Amen. Let's take seriously the things of God. Let's take seriously what we are to do for God. That's also what I see in this is Jesus 
being consumed with zeal, it says. How do I know that? Well, you go read Psalm 69, 9. Okay, that's where it's at. That's what he's quoting when he says the disciples remembered what was written. Amen? That was all free. I'm going to start from the beginning now. <clears throat> this is the first of three and at least four possible Passovers that John mentions. This is the first one that's named Passover. There's two others that are named Passover in the book of John. And we know that Passover is once a year, so we get our timeline for Jesus' ministry from the book of John. The timeline for Jesus' ministry is from the book of John, from Passover to Passover to Passover to Passover. Amen? So how do we know how long Jesus preached? Because we have three and possibly four Passovers in the book of John. That means John was with Jesus long enough to see four Passovers. That means John was with Jesus for at least three and a half to four years, which where we get our timeline. Amen? Now, if you want to know the uh, address for these other uh, signs or the other uh, Passovers, let me, well, if I find my note, I'll tell you. There it is. <laughs> uh, there are two others in John 6, verse 4, and John 11, 55, through 12, 1 is the final Passover, okay? We also know that there's an unspecified festival in John 5 and 1. And for the last 500 years, most people have believed that that's also a Passover, which would mean the Passover that we see in John 12, where we begin the last week of Jesus' life, is the final Passover that he was to be a part of before he died and then rose from the dead. Amen? Now, let's get another thing straight. Jesus celebrated Passover every year of his life. Every year, okay, since he was 12 years old, he celebrated the Passover. 12 years old, you are bar mitzvah. You become a man, and now you are accountable to the law and have to keep the law. That's what happens at 12. You're bar mitzvah. You're de declared a man, and then you have to then observe every year the three major festivals of the Jewish man. There were three festivals a year that a Jewish man absolutely had to attend. That was everyday life for them, okay? So Jesus celebrated the Passover every year since he was 12. There's not a year that he didn't do it, okay? Now, it, whether it's three Passovers in the book of John or four, we know Jesus was at them all. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> Let's just clear that up. He didn't like, well, I don't think I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. <laughs> no, they didn't do that. When it was time to go up to Jerusalem, you went up to Jerusalem. Amen? Now, the words that they use in Scripture when it says he went down from Canaan to Capernaum. This is not a direction as in north, south, east, or west. Okay? What you have to understand is that Cana was in the hill country. And Capernaum was on the seashore. So you had to leave the hill country and go down to Capernaum. You see that? So when he says he went down to Capernaum, it doesn't mean he went south. It just means he went down from the hill country to the seashore, which is the lower elevation. Amen? Now... The same phrase applies when we talk about going up to Jerusalem. If you understand that Jerusalem is set on a hilltop, 
on a flat plain hilltop, a plateau, you had to go from the valley up to Jerusalem, okay? All around Jerusalem was sloped down away from the city because the city was set on a plateau hill, okay? So when you hear them saying we're going up to Jerusalem, doesn't mean they're going north. It means they're changing elevation, okay? We're, we're, we're in the Kidron Valley, and now we're standing on top of Mount Moriah, right? This is the point, amen? So I just want you to get those words in there when we're, when we're talking about this. It says the Passover of uh, the Jews were at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Well, we knew he was in Capernaum, right? And we know Capernaum's on the seashore, so it's at a lower elevation. So when he went up to Jerusalem, he's going up in elevation. Now, he would have actually had to go south to go to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is south of Capernaum. Okay? But he still had to go up. Now, now that you're thoroughly confused, let's get to the real point about all this, okay? <laughs> I just thought that was interesting. Didn't know if you'd like that or not, but I, I figured I'd give it to you anyway. Now, the temple, it says that he was in the temple, okay? I want you to understand that this word temple here is not the holy of holies, okay? The Greek word that's being used here is hyron, uh, which actually means the outer portion of the temple, and not the holy of holies, obviously, because Gentiles weren't allowed in there, right? It, it, even if there was a temple today, do you realize that none of you or me could go into the holy place? We would only be allowed in the court of the Gentiles. But thank God that the temple doesn't matter because we have a new and living way to God that the veil has been torn, that we have made access through Jesus' flesh, that we don't have anything separating God and us. Amen? Except sin. Come on, somebody. And all you got to do is say, forgive me, receive Christ, and that part's done, right? The, the reality is the only thing separating people from God now is sin because the gospel's out there. The gospel's being preached People are being saved from sin. Amen. The wall of separation is down. Amen. Their activity was not the problem. It was where they were at. I want to read this note that I wrote. <clears throat> Hiron denotes the outer areas surrounding the temple, including the court of the Gentiles, in distinction from the temple building proper, which the Greek word would have been naos, N-A-O-S, from which non-Jews were excluded. By selling ox and sheep and pigeons, the merchants, as well as the money changers, rendering a service to those who had traveled from Jerusalem uh, to Jerusalem from afar, it enabled them to buy animals on Sight rather than to carry them from long distances. Now, I wrote this down because this is important that we grasp that what they're doing is not wrong. Amen? They needed oxen, sheep, and goats, and pigeons, and birds to sacrifice. They absolutely needed them in the sacrificial mosaic system of law. Amen? Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. In the old covenant, they killed the blood of goats and bulls to cover sin. So they needed those things. It was where they were doing it. Amen? That's why if you'll ever notice, anything that we have to ever sell, if somebody brings stuff to sell or to buy, it's going to be out there in the hallway. Right? Before we get in here where the church gathers. Not that we're prohibited from that, but it's a sign of respecting what this 
sanctuary is meant for, right? And that's the worship of God, amen? That's what they were missing. The fact that the temple grounds were for the worship of God, not for the things that were going on. I'm going to finish reading this note. By conducting their business in the temple complex, however, these individuals disrupted the worship of non-Jews, God-fearers, who, and if you look at uh, 1220, you kind of get an idea of those people being there, and thus obstructed the very purpose for which the temple was built. The temple was built for worship, not for commerce. Do your commerce outside the temple. Inside the temple is God's. Jesus said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. Amen. So my time inside the temple would have been for God, not for myself. Amen. Amen. That's what's that's what's going on here. They were and also they were disrupting the worship of those who were actually coming in there to worship. Amen. I can't tell you how often that I've went to pastors conferences or 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 just different church events and the worst part for me is when the person gets up and starts selling their material how many of you hate that right like i got this new book for 5.99 blah 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 and you can buy this and it'll tell you that and this other thing and here buy this thing right i don't like that i don't like that matter of fact if we ever have a conference here i'm gonna make it certain I shouldn't say if. How about let's, when we have a conference here, I'm not going to do that from here. Now, they can have their table out, and it's pretty obvious when you see a table with books and tapes, or, well, tapes, that tells you how old I am, CDs or thumb drives nowadays, right? It was cassette tapes when I first started preaching, okay? I roll around in my car with a Rolodex. I don't know if you guys remember what a Rolodex is, but you just keep addresses and phone numbers on those things. I had a great big one that I just flip around in my car. Anyway, if you see a table with those things on them and they have prices on them, it's pretty evident they're selling them, right? I don't know why we've got to make a big deal about it, right? Just, you know it's there. Pick your book up when you come in if you want, right? That's probably all that's going to be said. So when we have a conference, I'm not going to do that just because I don't like it, okay? I don't think that's what we're here for, amen? If somebody has books and stuff they want to sell, I'm all for them selling their books and stuff. We're just not going to do it in here. This ain't an auctioneer's podium, and we're not auctioning stuff off. This is the gospel's being preached, and it's given freely, Amen? That's what this pulpit's for. Verse 15, Jesus is fulfilling a messianic prophecy from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. So if you will, turn your Bibles to Malachi verse uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I am sending my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. Now, we all remember this, right? Because it was John, right? John was the messenger that was preparing the way of the Lord, right? I want you to notice how this prophecy in Malachi switches from the messenger to the Lord right after that. It says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Notice that. And the Lord... Whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and takes uh, and like a fuller's soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And he will bring offering, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. 
Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Now, this is how Jesus accomplishes this. Jesus comes in, and every time he's in the temple, what's he doing? He's correcting the Pharisees, the priests, who are Levites. You had to be a Levite to be a priest. Nobody that wasn't part of the, of the lineage of Levi was a priest. You couldn't be one unless you were a Levite. So Pharisees, the Levites, the priests, to do all of those things, you had to be a Levite. You had to be. Okay? The reality is, what does he say unto them? Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, teachers of the law. Right? He rebukes them, cleanses And when he comes in and he starts cleansing the temple, excuse me, he is taking the steps necessary to purify the Levites, to expose their sin, so that when they do give offering, they're doing it rightly. So how did that happen now? The Bible says that now we are all made kings and priests in Christ. Right? Why? Because he's the great high priest. He's the great king. He is the great prophet, right? He fulfills all those roles. Amen? Now, here's the greatest part of this miracle or what he's doing. Not only did it, not only is he fulfilling this part of this prophecy, but he's also jarred their heads to what the scriptures say. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 69. Psalm 69. If you want to know where it's at, it's right after Psalm 68. Verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproach of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So when Jesus comes in and he starts now, first of all, if you didn't catch this, he made a whip. So he got a cord, some cords together and made a whip, and he drove out the oxen and the sheep and the goats. Drove them out. He didn't just go in there and say, all right, get your sheep out of here. He made a whip, and he drove the animals out on his own. He wasn't waiting around for them to say, oh, it's okay, we'll leave. <laughs> he made them leave, right? And when the disciples see him doing this, it says that they remembered that it was written. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And they're quoting Psalm 69 verse 9. Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproach of them, those who reproach you has fallen on me. And it was a reproach to God. What they were doing, how they were treating the temple of God as some meaningless uh, uh, marketplace rather than the temple of the living God. Now, I want to apply this to you, Christian. So everybody hold your hand up, okay? This is you, so if you think I'm preaching about somebody else, I'm just telling you I'm preaching about you, okay? That's why I'm making you hold your hand up. Now, you Christians, you can put your hands down, you Christians must also understand that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit in whom you have received from God, right? So if God is in you and lives in you, he said glorify God in your bodies, which is God's. So he even says... You might think it's yours, and it might be on loan to you. But when I got saved, this stopped being mine. It's now his. So I must glorify God in my body. Amen? Or in this temple, 
or in this tent or in this tabernacle, however you want to say it, okay? If we are the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit, then we must realize that how I act, how I behave, how I conduct myself in God's house is important. Amen? Come on. Now, I ain't going to beat you up too hard with that because we all fall short, right? Come on. It says they remembered that it was written. This is a testament to what studying and learning and remembering and memorizing God's word can do for you. When you see something happening, they went, oh, the scripture said this. Right? So Jesus isn't just doing meaningless things. He's doing things that, first of all, jog their mind, right? And then even later on, they didn't understand all of this while it was happening, okay? Because we got that pretty well cleared up, too, in this, right? said later they remembered, right? After he rose from the dead, remembered this other part of it, right? But right then, they remembered this verse. This is a testament to why scripture and reading scripture is so important. I want to read a note to you that I found in uh, Ray Comfort's The Evidence Bible. It was very good. I thought it was very applicable to what we just read. He writes on verses 2, uh, 13 through 17. It says, when Jesus went into the temple, he found it to be full, uh, found it to be filled with those buying and selling merchandise. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, at each Passover, over 250,000 animals were sacrificed each year. The priests sold licenses to the dealers and therefore would have had a great source of income from the Passover. When the Bible called them changers of money, it was an appropriate term. There is, however, another theft that is going on in another temple. Mankind was made as a dwelling place for his creator. God made him a little lower than the angels, created him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of his hands, Hebrews 2 and 7. Yet his sin, yet sin has given the dwelling place over to the devil. The thief who came to steal and kill and destroy is making merchandise out of mankind. Instead of the heart of man being the temple of the living God, according to 2 Corinthians 6.16, and a house of prayer, iniquity has made it a den of thieves. When someone repents and calls upon the name of Jesus Christ, he turns the tables on the devil. The ten sting cords of the Ten Commandments in the hands of the Savior cleanses the temple of sin. Charles Spurgeon said this. Charles Spurgeon had a resolute grasp of the law in preaching to sinners. He said, I would that this whip would fall on your back, that you might be flogged out of your self-righteousness and made to fly to Jesus Christ and to find shelter there. Now, you see how this applies to us in our day and time. What's going on is humanity is supposed to be now the temple of the living God. He said, I have made my home among them. I will be their people and they are they will be my people and I will be their God. Right. This is the prophecy that Jesus fulfills in making the new covenant from Jeremiah 31 and 31. Amen. Come on, somebody. So Jesus is fulfilling and made this new covenant and mankind is now supposed to be the temple of the living God yet sin still has to be dealt with. And so many times what happens in our modern church where we start making prayer uh, an unimportant thing or, or even taking my hat off in church an unimportant thing or or even you know being courteous to other people at church an unimportant thing or how about this one it's not always what I believe is right that has to be done so many churches are split just because 
some person wanted orange pews and other people didn't. And if you've been here for a while, the orange pews just grow on you. <laughs> Amen? The, the reality is we turn so many things that God hates into unimportant things. God hates gossiping, backbiting. Yet you'll have preachers that'll address somebody smoking a cigarette, but they won't talk to the person that keeps talking about people. Come on, let's be real. You'll have preachers that talk to somebody about drinking, but they won't talk to somebody about adultery or fornication or homosexuality or anything else that might offend somebody. We need a temple cleansing. The American church needs a temple cleansing. Amen. We need to wipe the slate clean in so many of these churches and start back fresh with the gospel. You realize that that's what this church did two years ago. We just wiped the slate. Sorry, right back at the basics. Right back at Christ. Right back at the gospel. If it doesn't come back to Jesus and him crucified, dead, buried, and rose again. If it doesn't come back to that, then we're not talking about it. And that's what this temple cleansing is representing. Because notice what they ask him. Let's go back to this, and I'm going to finish this so we can go home, okay? I know everybody, I got that recliner at home that's brand new and needs worked out. You know, I got to work that new recliner out. But before we do that, we got to get through this. Notice what they said. Now, this, is a, this part perplexes me, okay? They said, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us? For doing these things. In other words, who are you to be doing these things? Show us a sign. Now, I want to first mention that they were at Cana in Galilee. So they didn't see the water being turned to wine. They may have heard about it, maybe. But we don't know that, right? So we, we know that these Jewish leaders were not in Cana. They did not see the miracle of turning water into wine. And as a matter of fact, that, that incident seems to only have affected those servants who drew the water and the disciples who knew what was going on. This here, Jesus coming in and cleansing the temple should have been a sign to them. But it wasn't. And they missed it. He said, what sign do you do? All but the disciples remembered the verse from Psalm 69, 9, zeal for the house, for thy house has consumed me. That zeal should have made the same Pharisees think the same thing. Hold on a minute. He's really zealous for God's house. Maybe this guy knows something, right? Maybe he's somebody. But they ask for a sign. Verse 19, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now this is significant and I could spend all day preaching on this point where Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again. Now we know that... Uh, God the Father was at work in raising Christ from the dead. We know that the Holy Spirit was at work in raising Christ from the dead. But we also know that no man took Jesus' life. He laid his life down and he said, I have authority. I have power to pick it back up again. John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Amen. So we know that Jesus didn't get his life taken and when he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again, that's exactly what he meant. Jesus Christ was raised by the triune God of which he is a member. 
That's why he said, I have this decree from my father. I have authority to lay my life down and to pick it back up. Because the only thing that died on Golgotha was the body of Jesus Christ. God can't die. God doesn't die. And God didn't die on a tree. The body of Jesus Christ died, but Christ eternal lived and raised that dirt suit back up. And one of these days he's coming back for you and he's coming back for me. And the trumpet of God will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first in our brand new glorified dirt suits. It doesn't matter if you get it cremated. It doesn't matter if it's mangled. It doesn't matter if the worms eat it all up. Because in the twinkling of an eye, in an instant, you're going to be changed. Boom. The dead in Christ will rise and we who are alive and remain will meet the Lord in the air. Why? Because he lives, I know I live. When Jesus got out of the ground, it was proof that he was the resurrection and the life. When Jesus got out of the ground, it was proof that he is the way, the truth, and the life. When Jesus got out of the ground, it was proof that he and the Father were one. So when he tells the Pharisees, I have, uh, you destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days, he meant it. And the Jews said to him, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? See, that's how people are, okay? People only think about, Nicodemus does the same thing in the next chapter. Jesus said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, can a, can a man go back in his mother's womb and be born a second time? Now, how silly does that sound, right? Well, first of all, it almost sounds like a smarty, smarty pants answer, right? It almost sounds like a smarty pants answer where he's like, oh, can I really do that? Now, Nicodemus is old. Chances are his mom wasn't around no more, okay? So he couldn't have done that anyway, let alone just the thought of it is repulsive, right? So we got to understand Nicodemus is trapped in his own mental human thoughts. Amen? And so is these Jewish leaders. They're trapped. They're like, it took 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? <laughs> now watch. John starts speaking now for himself. The discourse ends right there. And John said, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus said. Here's the second time where it says they believed the scriptures or what was written, right? First, they remembered Psalm 69, 9. Now they're saying they remembered the scriptures. What scriptures? The scriptures that said that the suffering servant would have to die. Isaiah 53. The suffering servant had to die. They remembered that. Then they believed those scriptures. Do you see nothing that Jesus did was outside of the bounds of the word of God. It was done in fulfillment of God's word. We don't have to turn to any other source to find proof of Jesus' life. We can go back to Genesis to Malachi and find everything we need to prove the gospel. Everything. You realize the writers of the New Testament didn't have the New Testament. They wrote the New Testament as an understanding, as a, uh, a commentary of the Old Testament. It's a commentary of what the scriptures declared about Jesus Christ being God in the flesh. 
the suffering servant, the Messiah who would come to seek and to save those who were lost. They remembered after his resurrection and they believed the scriptures. Now I want you to go with me to the last three verses and we're going to close. Verse 23 through 25, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Now what signs are they talking about? Him turning the temple tables over in the temple, him driving out the oxen, him telling the, the, the priests and the Levites, Hey, don't make my father's house a place of commerce. Right? This is a sign. These were all signs. They pointed to Jesus' messianic purpose. Amen? And then it says some very strange words that we need to dissect. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. Now this is speaking of Jesus' omniscience, his all-knowingness. He knows all things. He knows your heart, my heart, his heart, her heart. Yeah. Amen? Yeah, amen? Jesus knew what was in a man. Amen? Yeah. Now notice that he says he did not entrust himself to them. If you go and look this up and you dissect it a little bit, what you'll find is Jesus knew that their faith was spurious. It was fake. It was false. It was not genuine. So he did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew they were only believing because of the sign. Jesus will make this very clear when he talks to Thomas. He said, you believe because you see and because you've touched me, you've handled me. He said, but blessed are they who believe and do not see. That's me and you. Consequently, that's why there's no apostles nowadays because nobody's physically seen Jesus anymore, okay? Just to let, let you know, that's like a number one requirement to be an apostle is you have to physically have seen Jesus' resurrected self. Amen. <laughs> Amen? But we believe because of the testimony of the apostles. John 17 makes it clear when Jesus was praying, he prayed first for himself, then he prayed for the apostles, then he prayed for those who would believe on their testimony. That's us. We believe on the testimony of the apostles. What they said about Christ, and that's how we believe. That's us. Their faith was spurious. It was false. It did not look like it was supposed to. Jesus knew their heart and knew that they were not genuine. Why? Because he knew what was in a man. He knew all people, according to this verse. I got a couple more quotes here. This one's from Abraham Lincoln. He said, we may deceive all people sometimes, and we may deceive some people all the time, but not all people all the time, and not God at any time. And that's a good quote. Because, look, I, you know, there, there's pastors that stand in pulpits who have no idea who Jesus is. There's church people who sit in pews that have no idea who Jesus is. Oh, they got head knowledge and they, they've read the Bible and they know about it, but they're not born again. Jesus didn't say, hey, you got to read the Bible and you got to know this and you got to do that. He said, you must be born again. Church membership doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't save you. The sinner's prayer doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. And unless you're born again, you will split hell wide open. And 
You may be able to fool me, and you may be able to fool your neighbor, but you can't fool God. Ever. <coughs> Dwight L. Moody says, character is what you do in the dark. Lots of people can come to church and look good on Sunday morning and even put on a fancy brown suit. Yours truly. But it's not what I do behind this pulpit. It's not what I do behind this microphone. It's what's happening in secret. What happens when no one's around? What happens in my prayer life when I struggle with sin, when I struggle with my flesh, when I struggle and work out my own salvation with fear and trembling before Almighty God. Is it really belief? Because here's the thing, we, are, we like quoting Romans 10 and 9, and it's true that if I believe in my heart and confess with my mouth that I will be saved, that's true. But you have to believe it in your heart, not just confess it with your mouth. The confession of your mouth means absolutely nothing if it is not coming out of your heart. Because, let's go to Romans 10. I want to read this, okay? I want you to get the progression here. It's the last verse I'm going to read, I promise. Romans 10. We're going to read from verse, well, it'd help if I got to Romans instead of Hebrews. Yeah. I thought that doesn't look right. Yeah, I might have. Hmm. Romans 10, verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, verse 10 is important, and I want you to get it. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whosoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is rich to all who call upon him. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The caveat to verse 13 is verse 10. You must believe in your heart. You must. Amen. So as we close this morning, my question to you is not have you made a confession my question to you is what's in your heart my question is are you born again my question is are you settled with the fact that Jesus knows you in the innermost being do you realize that Jesus knows whether you're being genuine or not. And if you're not genuine, today would you believe on Christ? Today would you trust Christ? Would you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth? You see, this temple cleansing was a precursor to the gospel, and it was meant that as the disciples see this happen and then hear Jesus' words, and when they saw him resurrected, all of a sudden it jarred their memory. That's what he was talking about when he said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And that gave them hope. And it built faith in them to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it ought to build faith in you as you read this story to understand that Jesus is telling in no uncertain terms that he is the new covenant, the mediator of the new covenant. And as Hebrews says, a better covenant. 
Amen. Not based on works, but based on what he did for me. Let's stand. Father God, I thank you for this day, Lord. I thank you for the time that we have come together this morning. Thank you, Lord, that we were able to get through this whole chapter, God. Lord, we ask that you would help us as we leave this place, God, to meditate and to think about your word, to think on what we have received this morning, God. And Lord, I pray that if there is anyone in this room or that is watching this on Facebook who has not come to a genuine saving relationship with Jesus Christ, Lord, that this message spoke to them. That their temple would have been cleared, that they would have been cleansed by your word, by your spirit, that you would convict them of sin and draw them to yourself. Let them come to faith in Christ. And Lord, we stand ready to rejoice with them because all of heaven rejoices at one sinner who repents. This morning, Lord, we ask that you would help us that do believe on you. That we would be faithful in preaching and proclaiming your gospel. That others would be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you.